0: The book of Revelation, in many ways, could be called a tale of two cities. One city is Babylon, as seen in Revelation 18, representing the world system, focusing on earthly values, earthly priorities. Uh, And then the new Jerusalem, which we'll get to in Revelation 21, representing the kingdom of God, focusing on eternal values and eternal priorities. Or we could say Revelation is a tale of two women, The great prostitute of Revelation 17, also representing the evil world system and the earthly values and priorities. Or the bride of the Lamb, Revelation 19 we'll see today, also representing the kingdom of God, heavenly values and heavenly priorities. Their eventual and eternal destinies could not be more different. What happens with Babylon... It's not at all like what happens with New Jerusalem. What happens with the great prostitute is not at all what happens with the bride, of the lamb. Determining which one you belong to is a significantly important decision. This isn't a decision that's made then. It's a decision that's made now. It's a decision that's made now Because the spirit behind both the prostitute and Babylon is the spirit of the Antichrist which is at work in the world today. And the spirit behind New Jerusalem and the bride of the Lamb is the spirit of God which is also at work in the world today. Both are drawing people to separate and distinct paths. The spirit of God is drawing people to Jesus to walk down the narrow path the path of righteousness that brings glory to Him. The Spirit of the Antichrist is drawing people to a path of selfishness, to a path of sin, to a path that leads ultimately to destruction. Which spirit we listen to, which woman we favor, which city we're a citizen of, matters significantly. We've seen the end of Babylon the city. We've seen the end of the great prostitute. Today we will see the end of the Bride of the Lamb. Open your Bible if you haven't already to Revelation nineteen. We're going to be in page nine hundred and sixty. When you find that I'm asking you to stand to the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at the first ten verses. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he judged the great prostitute who was corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bond on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bond servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has prepared herself. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, For fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. title of the message this morning is the Hallelujah Chorus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are wonderful and worthy. And we do pray. We do pray that you would help us to elevate our view of you we would live in the fear of the Lord as we ought to. For the world, Babylon, the prostitute, is appealing. Pulls at us all in a variety of different ways. And in our natural selves, we want to answer the pull. We want to go with the flow. We, We want to be a part of Babylon. Lord, there is another part. Your Spirit living within us is calling us to hold on. To live for the city that's coming. To live for the land that is slain for us. And Lord, if our view of You is not accurate, we will not follow Your Spirit. The world will appeal to us in so many ways. It will draw us away. Oh God, open our eyes to your beauty. Open our eyes to your greatness. So that we can see the allure of the world for the, just the trash it is. Like Paul, we would say, I've counted all things loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Count them but rubbish that can be found in Him, having His righteousness, not the righteousness of the law. Oh, as we look at this passage today, let us understand what we're seeing. Let it lift our eyes to Jesus, what He has done, what is our future. Let us love Him supremely and live for Him completely. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter what temptations come, let us love the Lord our God with such a passion. The allure of the world would not be that alluring at all. Fill me today with Your Spirit and let me speak Your words in Your ways for Your glory. Help me that I would not be a hindrance in any way to what You want said or to what You want done. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let Your Spirit work through me to speak what needs to be spoken. Convict us where we need convicting. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Rejoice us where we need rejoicing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. After these things, it says, letting us know what we see here in verses 1 through 10 is a response to the judgment on Babylon and the prostitute. In some ways, what we're seeing here is a different perspective of something we've seen before. In Revelation 14, we saw a forward perspective vision of the redeemed in heaven with Jesus. Then in Revelation 15, we saw another vision of the redeemed in heaven with Jesus rejoicing and worshiping because of God's judgment upon the beast and upon his kingdom. And what we're seeing in Revelation 19 is the same thing we've seen before, but from a different perspective. As the great multitude in heaven worship the Lord, they shout hallelujah. And hallelujah means praise Yahweh. And it was often used to express jubilant joy. And jubilant joy is the tone of the passage. There is jubilant joy at the salvation of Jesus. There is jubilant joy at the reign of Jesus. And there is jubilant joy at the invitation of Jesus. All three of these, the salvation, the reign, the invitation of Jesus exist because Jesus has been victorious over the dragon, over his antichrist, his beast, and upon the kingdom in which they built. And the victory of Jesus brought jubilant joy to the redeemed. Our key truth today is the same. The certainty of Jesus' victory should fill us with jubilant joy. As we think about what is to come, as we think about the victory Jesus has won on the cross, the one He will ultimately win in the end of all things, we should be filled with great joy at who Jesus is and what He has done. So in this passage, there are three expressions I want us to, to consider today of Jesus' victory And the way we should worship and be filled with jubilant joy over that. The first is Jesus saves. Hallelujah. I like that word. Hallelujah. I put that in there so I can say it over and over again. As free will Baptists, we don't say that word nearly enough. We should be more hallelujah people. But that's not in my notes. That's just extra. Now the way I read this section, the salvation is mentioned first. And it's the main thought the saints in heaven are worshiping god because of the salvation they received through jesus now salvation here seems to have a a twofold meaning first it means the ultimate salvation and deliverance they received through faith in jesus this salvation delivered them from the seduction of the evil powers of the kingdom they lived in babylon but they were not a part of babylon they didn't take part in the iniquity Of the great prostitute. They were saved from that. Second it meant they had been saved from the judgment. And the wrath of God that had been poured out. Now to say life for the disciples of Jesus during the tribulation period was hard. Would be an understatement. Yet the salvation they had through faith in Jesus. Enabled them to escape the ultimate judgment we looked at in the later chapters. Both of these meanings of salvation reveal the glory and the power. And they belong to God and to God alone. Now the flip side of the salvation that came through Jesus is the judgment that was brought by God in verse 2. His judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great prostitute who is corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Because her smoke rises forever and ever. The saints who rejoice at the salvation of God also rejoice at the judgment of God. They rejoice at the judgment of God because God's judgment is righteous and true. God's judgment is true. Because it is a fulfillment of what God had long said would happen. God in His Word has been clear. There is salvation to be found through faith in Jesus. And those who would come to Jesus by faith and and submit to His rule and reign over their lives would be spared the judgment to come. But, But those who rejected the Son And resisted His rule over their lives. There was nothing but certain judgment coming for them. And so after a millennia. Preaching, declaring, sending this out. Even during the tribulation period. This message went forth among the witnesses and the disciples of Jesus. Among the angel who flew in the heavens and declared the gospel. And the people had rejected the good news of Jesus. They had resisted God's rule over their lives. And even as judgment fell, rather than repent at their sin, they cursed God. And so there is a righteous, a true judgment has fallen upon them. Their judgments are just because they are based on the righteous character of God. Of Almighty God. The God who loves and saves and sent His Son is also just. And justice demands sin be punished and evil be destroyed. A just judge must punish sin. A just God must destroy evil. Those who suffered judgment and the wrath of God that we have read about in previous chapters. They brought it upon themselves through their continual rejection of Jesus. And their continual resistance to to his rule in their lives. They intentionally aligned themselves with the Antichrist, with the beast, by taking his mark. They did so as they aligned themselves, pledged their allegiance to him and worshipped him as God for the sake of peace and prosperity and pleasure. They scorned God's mercy and God's grace as they rejected the spirit of and his call, the gospel, and its call, and the disciples of Jesus as they issued the call to come to Jesus and be saved. Their sin, their rejection, and resisting and scorning all came to a head as they joined the evil kingdom symbolized as the prostitute who murdered disciples of jesus the prostitute described as being drunk of the blood of the martyrs having spread her immorality over the whole earth they joined with her they took part in her sins they rejoiced at the slaying of the saints And in doing these things, they brought this judgment on themselves. The judgment of God is just. We we must know that. The judgment of God is true. It is based upon what has been clearly revealed. That's true. We must know that. But the good news here, the hallelujah aspect here, is that Jesus... The judgment that's come does not have to be experienced by anyone ever. Anyone can be saved from the judgment to come should they choose to turn to Jesus and be saved. For us who are saved, there is rejoicing. We should praise Yahweh. There should be jubilant joy at what we have. Our salvation in God's Word is often descripted, described in three ways. There is the past salvation, there is the present salvation, and there is the future salvation. In, in the past, We were saved from the penalty of sins on the day we repented of our sins. And we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And that very moment our our sins were taken away. our, Our guilt was removed. God declared us to be righteous. And we were born again with a new nature and a new heart and a new spirit. We were a new creation in Christ. In the present we are being saved from the power of sin. This is an ongoing process where the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to help us become more and more like Jesus. This process begins the moment we're saved and it continues while we're in this life. There's always a little more of Jesus that can be evident in our life. And so the Spirit works through the Word and He is saving us from the power of sin at this present moment and in the future. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. When we get to these days, to what we're going to look at later as New Jerusalem comes down. In those moments we are finally and fully delivered from the power and even the presence of sin. On that day our, our sinful nature will be destroyed and we will be made new yet again. And we will have glorified bodies like Jesus. And we will be completely free from all the effects of sin. We will not feel its pull, its sorrow, its destruction. We will live forever with the Lamb. So I thought about Jesus saving this week. I thought about my own salvation. And you know, we take all of this by faith. I, I, I didn't see Jesus die on the cross. And when I repented and when I believed, I mean, S didn't form over my heart showing I had been saved. A certificate didn't fall from heaven. I've not seen the things we're talking about that are yet to come. I, I, I believe them both by faith. And I believe them certainly, truly, Absolutely. And I realized one of the reasons I believe in the past salvation from Jesus and the future salvation from Jesus is because of the the present salvation of Jesus I'm experiencing in my life. The fact I'm a pastor testifies of something is not what it used to be in my life. There are things I care about. That I would not care about if it were not for Jesus and His work in my life. There are things I don't care about. That I would care about if it was not for Jesus and His work in my life. There's really nothing that I do that I am as a human. That is because I'm I'm a good man. Or because I'm a moral person. It is the work of Jesus and what He has done for me. Seeing His work in me now gives me confidence about what He did then and hope for what He will do in the days to come. This is the way— one of the ways we should look at our salvation. How can we be sure Jesus saved us back then? How can we be sure He'll save us in the days to come? What is He doing in your life right now? Philippians 1 and 6 says, He who began a good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. He he doesn't give up. He doesn't stop. What is He doing in your life right now? How is He helping you become more like Him? How is He working in you to sanctify you, to draw you closer The work of Jesus in your life at the moment can give you confidence about this work of Jesus in your life in the past. And the confidence about what He will do for you in the future. The certainty of Jesus, His victory and our salvation should fill us with a jubilant joy. So like those in this passage, we shout hallelujah. I love the way the worship is described. A loud voice in verse 1. It's a great multitude. In verse 4, they, they fall down and they cry out, Amen, Hallelujah. The picture of falling down is being all in in their worship, overwhelmed the goodness and the greatness of the one who has saved them. They're not half hearted about their singing. And they're shouting and they're rejoicing in their Savior. We shouldn't be either. Listen to what John Piper says about our worship in light of our salvation. Corporate worship is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries. Because we have found in God the satisfaction Of our souls in his presence, is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon. We will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all of our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. The certainty Jesus's victory is seen. in the fact Jesus saves should fill us with jubilant joy. Second, Jesus reigns. Hallelujah. In verse 6. We see, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 6. Great multitude, we see toward the end, God is described as the Lord, our God, the Almighty, who reigns. The Lord, the Sovereign Lord, our God, the Almighty, the Omnipotent One. He reigns, the king over kings, the Lord over lords. His lordship is seen all throughout the book of Revelation. It is seen most clearly thus far in the victory that Jesus wins. That Jesus has that God has brought over the kingdom, and the prostitute of the beast and the dragon and And the false prophet. His omnipotence, his reign will be seen further when we get to next week at 1911, where Jesus conquers as the king over kings and the lord over lords. But in our text, we see the reign of Jesus described in a different way God's sovereignty. His omnipotence, His lordship is seen in the bride of the Lamb. Verse 7 and 8. The wedding day has come. We rejoice and we're glad and we give the glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has prepared herself. Wedding imagery is seen all throughout God's Word. Old and New Testament to show the kind of relationship Jesus has with those he redeems. And in this passage there is some measure of a contrast between the prostitute in the chapter previous, the bride here. The prostitute is well a prostitute and has committed acts of sexual immorality with everyone, and anyone willing. The bride, though, is pure, a virgin. Pledged and faithful to Jesus alone. The prostitute was described as being dressed somewhat garishly. The bride is is dressed simply in pure white linen. The prostitute leads others to sexual immorality and all kinds of immorality. The bride leads others to righteous acts in the name of Jesus. The prostitute sheds the blood of the saints of God. The bride is made up of saints washed in the blood of the Lamb. The prostitute is destroyed in judgment. The bride is saved from judgment. The prostitute enters eternity wailing and weeping and agony. And the bride Enters eternity rejoicing with jubilant joy. The last of verse 7 says, The bride has prepared herself. Many ways we could look at and say the bride has prepared herself, but just at the focusing on the context of Revelation, we could say the bride prepares herself by remaining faithful to Jesus in a fallen and an evil world. The bride prepares herself by enduring hardship in the midst of suffering. The bride prepares herself by trusting God in the face of martyrdom. And the bride prepares herself by obeying God. To take the gospel to all tribes and languages, people and nations. But notice in verse 8, it was given to the bride to clothe herself. And the clothing represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, this fits very well with the idea of the bride preparing herself, but the linen was given to her. Who gave it to her? Right? Of course, God gave her the clean clothes. Because it's given when the saints repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. And as They were given this clean, white clothing. They were then enabled to prepare themselves and do the righteous acts. The new birth, the salvation, enabled the bride to prepare herself to do these righteous acts. Now, to illustrate this, I would talk about how our righteous Deeds apart from Jesus are like filthy rags. But Sarah says I tell that story too often. So I'll do it with a different example. Look at what the Bible says. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for His good pleasure. Notice the command. Work out your salvation with fear and truly not work for your salvation. No, no, work out. You've been saved. Now live that out. This is comparable to preparing ourselves to the righteous acts of the saints. But notice what enables us to work out our salvation. It is God who is at work in us both to desire and to work for His good pleasure. Our desire to do the good works, our desire to work out our salvation, our desire to prepare ourselves is a gift given to us by God. Our every desire for God is always a response to His desire for us. But not only does God give us the desire to work out our salvation. God gives us the work. He gives us the ability to do this. Anything God leads us to do, God empowers us to do. Anything God gives us the desire to accomplish, He gives us the ability to accomplish. This is the same image we see with the bride preparing herself with righteous deeds because she has been clothed in fine linen. And here's how all of this connects to the idea of Jesus reigning. Jesus reigns. His reign is evident because the church exists. No matter how evil the world becomes, no matter how much power and influence the dragon gains, no matter how many people worship the beast, no matter what, there will always be those who have been redeemed by Jesus and are faithful to Jesus. This is true in the days to come. This is true in our day as well. And we don't live in end times Babylon, but make no mistake, we live in Babylon. Babylon. The Antichrist spirit is at work in our world today, and so much of our culture actively serves the dragon. And if we aren't careful, this truth can lead us to fear, and to say things. What will we do if this happens? What will become of the church if this person or that person is elected? But what happens if this law or that law is implemented? If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? The Lord is on His throne. That's what the righteous will do. They will trust. They will fear not because Jesus reigns and the gates of hell themselves cannot overcome the church of the living Christ. If anything really to, really kind of helps us to see this, it should be all that has happened in Afghanistan. From what we know, they actively seek the church there to murder them, to kill them. And yet the church is there. The Taliban cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ with threats of violence or actual violence. The dragon cannot stop the church of Jesus Christ With threats of violence or actual violence. And even if many are wooed away and join Babylon and the harlot. Not all will. Some will remain. The church is an alien outpost in Babylon, John Piper says. And so we are. And so we will remain. Until the end of time. For Jesus reigns and this truth merits our worship, our hallelujahs and our jubilant joy and that's what we see in this passage verse 5 a voice comes from the throne saying, give praise to our God and notice who's called his bond servants you who fear him, the small and the great it's, it's everyone. Everyone who is a servant of God, everyone who is redeemed by the land is called to worship Him because He reigns on the earth and He has a people prepared and He will care for them and see them through. And again, the worship is mighty. And He hears something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters. And the sound of a mighty peals of thunder. And they're shouting hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and give glory because he has a people and he kept them even in the midst of Babylon the great. Their worship, as in the previous verses, were not half-hearted. It's exuberant. It's excited. It's passionate. They're all in worshiping the One who reigns. The certainty of Jesus' victory as seen in the fact Jesus reigns should fill us with jubilant joy. And then finally, Jesus invites Hallelujah. John is told to write how blessed are those who are invited to the wedding of the Lamb. The word invited has been used in a previous chapter in Revelation 17, 14. And in there it was translated as invited or called. This description, invited or called, fits those who hear and who heed the gospel call to become disciples of Jesus. Now what John is writing, blessed are those who are invited, it is not for the people of the future. It is for the people of all time. John is going to, when this is all finished, John is going to complete his letter and send it out to the churches. And they are going to come to this and realize they are invited. They are the ones who are invited to the wedding feast to join themselves with the lamb and to eschew Babylon and the prostitute. And it is for every reader of Revelation since then. It's a warning to carefully hear, diligently heed the gospel call by repenting of sins. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we carefully heed, we immediately respond because these are the true words of God. This is God's word to us. It's an invitation. And the invitation is, is open today. Some of the final words of the book of Revelation state this invitation in in clear terms. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. The spirit is saying, come to Jesus. The bride, the church, is to say to the world, come to Jesus. We as individuals who hear are to say, come to Jesus. And those who are thirsty are to recognize this is for them. And they are to come to Jesus. Come. This is Jesus' invitation to you and I today. Come. Come today. Come now. Come. But I must caution with this invitation: to come, we must not only come to Jesus, but we must come in the way He prescribes. Turn quickly, hold your finger here, because we are coming back to Matthew 22. It should be page 753 in your pew Bible. Matthew twenty-two and verse one. Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, "Kingdom of heaven." What we're looking at, it's like a king who held a wedding feast for his son, and he sent slaves to those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were all unwilling to come. And he sent other slaves, saying, "Tell those who have been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle, and all the butchered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention and went their separate ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, treated them abusively, and then killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set fire to their city. So people are invited. They initially said yes. But when it was time, they they wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they come? Some paid no attention. Went their own ways. They were just too busy. I mean, they just had no, eh, no whatever. Some had their own businesses to attend to, farm or other business. Some responded in in anger, but they didn't come. So, the king says in verse 8, And he said to his slaves, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go to the main roads and invite whoever you find there to the wedding feast." Those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. The wedding hall was filled and the dinner guests filled with dinner guests. The invitation went out to a broader group of people. They went out and they found them. And these people all came in. Look at verse 11. But when the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw one, a man, who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Now, let me explain what that means. in this day when you would have a celebration like this particularly if you invited people from the highways and the hedges you would provide them with the wedding garments so the the host would have it and he would have garments for those that were invited and they would show up and they would put on the clothes that the the host had made for them and had prepared for them and they were expected to wear them this was a a part of being uh, coming and in being receiving what the what the host had offered, what we have here is a guy who he wanted everything the invitation offered, everything the wedding feast offered, but he didn't want to come in the way the dude wanted him to come. He didn't respond in the right way, and he said to him, verse twelve, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king said to the servants, tie his hands and feet, throw him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. For many are called, but few are chosen. Not only was he not allowed to enter the wedding feast, but then he was bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness where he would spend his time weeping, gnashing his teeth. The point of the parable is simple. We are the ones invited in verses 8 through 10. We are the ones who have been brought in from the roads, from the highways, and from the hedges. And while we're all invited, and we must, one, individually accept this invitation, but we must accept the invitation in the way the inviter demands. And the way the inviter demands is by repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we respond to the invitation That goes out. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. The change of life is a critical part of repentance and the logical fruit of changing our minds. If I change my mind about what God has said about sin, sin is bad, God is right, God is good, then the natural outflow of that will be I will change my life. I will not go back to that which God has said is bad. Genuine repentance always involves a change of life. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Cannot separate one without destroying them both. Now faith isn't meant in a general way. It's not enough to believe there is a God. There will be people in hell who believed in God. Belief in hell does not save. Belief in God does not save. Must believe in Jesus. But even that is specific. It's not enough to believe there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died. Saving faith is very specific and very narrow. Our faith is in Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection. And believing that alone saves us. See, in order to take hold of the salvation, Jesus offers us to to respond. We must let go of our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency. We cannot cling to our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency. And Jesus... At the same time, we must let go of one to grab the other. Faith in Jesus means letting go of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency to grab the cross, to grab Jesus as our only means of righteousness and salvation. There are no good works we do to merit our salvation. There are no good works we do to earn our salvation. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ is the only way we can respond to the invitation. And it is the only response enabling us to experience the salvation of Jesus. Okay, so hold your finger here, but look back at Revelation 19, 8 and 9. Now notice the similarities between the Matthew passage and this. Both involve a wedding celebration. Matthew involves the invitation Revelation involves the the consummation, the fulfillment of it. Now, those who accept the invitation in, in Matthew were given wedding clothes to wear. And the bride was given wedding clothes to wear so she could clothe herself. In Matthew, the guests had to be wearing the clothes. In Revelation, the bride, once clothed, had to prepare herself. The invitation has been given. You and I are invited. Righteousness will be given to us when we come to Jesus through repentance and faith. We then make ourselves ready through our living out our repentance, living out our faith, and our faithfulness to Jesus as seen in righteous acts. When we respond to the invitation in the way Jesus demands, He clothes us. And He makes it so we can then do the righteous acts. We can do those things He would have us to do. I like how the story ends in Revelation. And I fell at His feet to worship Him. And He said to me, Don't do that. Fellow servant of yours and your brother's, the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. As you can imagine, John is somewhat overwhelmed at what he's seen, and he is just caught up in the moment and begins to worship the angel, who says, "No, don't do it. Only God is worthy of worship." I'll close with another quote by John Piper: "Worship is what the whole book of Revelation is about. That's the point of all God's judgments." All God's dealing with the world. All God's plans for history from the beginning have one goal. Worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. Don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the news that Babylon is fallen forever. Worship God. Certainty of Jesus' victory as seen in the fact that we are invited to the wedding feast should fill us with jubilant joy. So the question today we have to answer Am I prepared? The invitation is there. Have I responded with repentance and faith? Have I been given By Jesus, the white linen clothing, the righteousness of Christ to wear. This is the only way. We will not be allowed in without that. We must accept His invitation through repentance and faith. There is no other way. Have you responded in that way? Have you accepted the invitation? Has it been given to you to dress in the righteousness of Christ? If not, come. The Spirit right now is saying, come. The bride through the church is saying, come. We who have heard and respond say, come. If you're thirsty, come. Babylon is shiny. Babylon is luring. Babylon will be destroyed. Do not be allured by that which will be destroyed. Come to Jesus today. Let's stand.